Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 98, Policy Change. At this point, I think all of you listening are now well-educated on the dire state of the Russian nation in the aftermath of its civil war. By 1921, the fighting had mostly died down, although there was still the matter of waiting for the Japanese to finally leave the Far East and dealing with the insurgencies on the southern periphery. The vast majority of the enormous nation, though, could now maybe take a breather and get a much-needed reprieve from the miseries of the past decade. But this podcast being what it is, you know that was never going to be in the cards. First, let's get out of the way the actual effects of the Russian Civil War. What Russia could have been had the October Revolution been more decisive, or at very least that the fighting hadn't spread to so many corners of the nation, we'll never know. The hard fact is that the first socialist state was born amidst the collapse and miseries of the old order that had preceded it, and before it could even take its own chance at governing, was thrust into a cataclysm that left the unwieldy nation in ruins. The Russian Empire had already been too big for its own good, its geography dispersing the population centers it was responsible for all across Eurasia. This meant connecting the damn thing and making it operate as a functional unit was a challenge that the czars had never quite been able to handle. And now, it fell to the communists to take that old dispersed unit and revolutionize its inhabitants, all the while dealing with a colossal step backward in the resources they could work with. They would need to do far more with far less than their predecessors had worked with. Every measure of prosperity by 1921 had crashed disastrously since 1913, Grain production had dropped to 44% of its pre-war level, livestock dropped 73%, and industrial output was down 70%. The economic understanding that Lenin had gambled with when launching a Marxist revolution in underdeveloped Russia was gone. If a functional socialist state demanded a modern economy in order to exist, then one now had to be built from the ground up and it was going to be this quest for development and modernization that was going to dominate the debates inside the Bolshevik party for the rest of the 20s. And then, after Stalin solidified his leadership, it was going to be his own obsession. I know I probably could have glossed over the Civil War a little more than I did, but I wanted to really hammer home just how much that particular crucible came to define communist Russia. The October Revolution was led by men who recognized their moment as the only one they were going to get once in power, and they proved willing to fight to the death in order to defend their dream. And they very nearly did. Territory was sacrificed to despised invaders, the heart of the nation was cut off from the rest of the world, the home base of the revolution was assailed from all sides by an array of foes. Simply to survive, the Bolsheviks had been forced to meet brutality with still greater brutality, and now the bill for those sacrifices started coming due. In order to progress beyond the military emergencies of the Civil War, the Bolsheviks had to move past war communism. The brutal ad hoc policies of the war years had proven to be a failure, as we covered in episodes 94 through 96. The tragedy was that this was well recognized before 1920, but the party leadership couldn't bring itself to change course until 1921, when the long-term damage was already done. Indeed, it would be in 1921, after the wars had died down, that some of the worst living conditions of those early years would appear. In the countryside, the peasantry had almost completely fallen out with the revolution. 
their experience in the first few years had already been mixed, with the Bolsheviks supporting them and taking the farmlands held by the upper classes they had long coveted, but at the price of being subjected to harsh requisitions to feed the cities. But as the white armies were crushed one by one and the new regime expanded its reach, the relationship changed and not to the peasants' liking. Since time immemorial, the vast Russian countryside managed to keep its distance from the central government, usually with the local communes reporting to a captain who then answered to the provincial authorities. Not exactly the most hands-on style of governance. With the collapse of the central government, this oversight was reduced to almost nothing. The solidification of the new state, though, changed everything. The communes started to be integrated into the hierarchy of governance that extended all the way to Moscow. And suddenly, the land seizures that had delighted so many now seemed a poison chalice. They had expected to be masters of their new gains, but it became apparent they'd be reporting to the needs of the party and state going forward. The feeling of unease was made worse by the requisitioning. In the first couple years, it had been haphazard and inefficient, but by 1920, the Red Army was becoming exceedingly good at it. Especially in the provinces along the Volga River, the requisition demands during 1920 exceeded what was actually harvested, which forced the peasants to turn over grain kept in their storehouses which was bad, because at that point the peasantry were put in danger of starvation themselves as their food stores were shuffled off to the cities. And because nobody was lucky in those days, the 1920 harvest wasn't great either, which just added to the pressure. And the peasants didn't act passively to all this either. At first they took the usual steps of hiding their grain or converting it to liquor in order to have something to barter with later. But in late 1920, the level of armed resistance shot up as the patience of the farmers wore thin. Even in the core of Russia, the Red Bastion, Bolshevik authority crumbled outside the towns as peasants rose in revolt. The entire Tambov province was effectively lost from autumn 1920 to summer 1921, with the Volga provinces also slipping from their grasp outside the major population centers. Bandit armies roamed the Urals and surrounding regions all the way to the Caspian Sea. Belarusia and Ukraine once more started slipping from Moscow's grasp as nationalist groups took control of the countryside. Most of the major towns of Siberia fell away again due to the uprisings. This was obviously a very dangerous situation for the Bolsheviks going into 1921, and was a factor in their decision to maybe chill out on exporting the revolution abroad when conditions were getting critical again back home. Part of the reason why the uprisings were so effective was because much of the Red Army's best fighters were deployed to the frontiers, and the millions of troops held in reserve were mostly just useful for garrisoning the towns at best. And oftentimes it was Red Army deserters from those unreliable garrison troops that provided the muscle for the uprisings and the roaming bandit armies. In addressing this crisis, the Reds would need to learn the rules of a guerrilla war. This would be unlike the Whites, who had standing armies that, once beaten, rapidly disintegrated. Now they were facing scattered bands from all backgrounds tied to their local villages, and if intimidated into compliance one day, could simply reform itself the next. Initially, the Red Army's efforts to put down the rebellions met with disaster. As was the case in all guerrilla wars, the locals had the advantage of knowing local terrain and had the sympathies of people actually living there. The Red Army proved totally incapable of rooting out the partisans, and the first wave of soldiers sent into the rest of provinces were roundly beaten. 
Tukhachevsky commented that their only effect had been to provide the rebels with more armaments. The rebels would sabotage local infrastructure and isolate red detachments before finishing them off. The demands of the peasants were straightforward, simply a return to their days of autonomy in 1918 without the fear of requisitions. Basically, the return of peasant Soviets as they were before being hijacked by the Bolsheviks. They were a bit confused on the details, as some called for Trotsky being removed while praising Lenin, or denouncing the communists and praising the Bolsheviks. News traveled only fitfully, so many communities had developed distinctions between these terms or the policies of their leaders that didn't actually correspond to reality. Nevertheless, the broad strokes of what they wanted were pretty clear. And to be clear, this was not a white resurgence. The rebels didn't call to destroy the government, just for the government to largely leave them alone. Many of the most active in the uprisings had in fact fought the whites in the years previous. All these revolts in the nation's farmlands predictably upended the food supply to the cities, and discontent was not slow in building there either. On January 22, 1921, the already insufficient bread ration was cut by a third in many major cities, including Moscow and Petrograd. The workers starved and what factories remained shut down as fuel supplies were disrupted by the revolts. In Moscow, the workers organized a general strike that called for party members to be stripped of their privileges over them and also lifting the government's oversight in their ability to travel and trade in the countryside. The remnants of the SRs and Mensheviks took the lead in cheering these efforts on, and Bolshevik representatives were rudely turned away. On February 21st, thousands of workers took to the capital streets, and the regular soldiers refused to fire in the crowds, leading to them being withdrawn in favor of specifically communist units which didn't hesitate. Several workers were killed, leading to a bigger crowd appearing the next day, this time trying to reach the common soldiers' barracks to get them to help their cause. The rank and file, though, were locked inside, and again the communist units descended onto the crowds. On the 23rd of February, a column of 10,000 protesters appeared, and the regime declared martial law. The exact same thing was happening in Petrograd, as on the 22nd, its factories began to shut down, and their workers took to the streets. Clashes between them and soldiers broke out, with many of the troops opting to go over to the people's side. Sailors of the cruiser Aurora disembarked to join the protesters, a heavily symbolic blow, as that was the ship which had fired upon the Winter Palace back in October 1917. Petrograd followed Moscow in coming under martial law on the 25th. The Bolsheviks were understandably panicking. It was almost exactly four years since the February Revolution, and the conditions were nearly identical. The party boss of Petrograd, Zinoviev, was always a panicky fellow, and the crisis led him to promise the workers better conditions and food, which the workers didn't buy for one minute. The Cheka arrested hundreds, but couldn't contain the protests. Resentments had been bottled up by the fact that the workers genuinely hated the whites, and that the state offered something new. But with people freezing and starving in their homes, desperation ruled the day, and a new revolution was called for. On February 27th, these calls were heard and one of the more dramatic cases of the early communist era took place. The sailors of the Kronstadt naval base had been vital supporters of the early revolution. Remember the Kronstadt is located on an island on, of the same name off the coast of Petrograd, close to, but isolated from, the city. 
Those sailors had been the most anti-Tsar, anti-provisional government faction of the military, and had been a spearhead during the city's takeover by the Bolsheviks. But they weren't really Bolshevik. They were just broadly, well, revolutionary. And the Bolsheviks had not been able to control their own personal Soviet the way they had all the others. If they saw a government that they didn't like, they'd go in against it. And they had really started to not like the Bolshevik government, only supporting it for so long out of a hatred of the whites. Many of them had actually come from the peasantry and had kept in touch with back home or gone out into the countryside while on leave. Suffice to say, they were feeling like an uprising was in order, and on the 28th sent a delegation to check out what was happening in the city. When they got back with the news, they raised their flag of revolt. Their own demands were pretty simple as well, and also similar to the ones of the peasantry. Restore the rule of the independent Soviets. The Bolsheviks could even stay on if they guaranteed to respect the will of those Soviets and not try to hijack them. The Kronstadt sailors had been a huge propaganda asset for the regime, even after the sailors themselves grew disenchanted. Their image was part of the revolutionary iconography. What I'm getting at is their revolt was a huge embarrassment, and the regime's attempt to explain it away as these sailors in 1921 being different ones from those in 1917 was a lame one. On March 1st, Mikhail Kalinin was sent in to try and talk the sailors down, but as was becoming usual, was rudely shut down. His presence, though, convinced them the Bolsheviks would send a force at any time to put them down, prompting a hasty defense of the island to be organized. While that attack would take some time to materialize, Lenin did hit the panic button and deploy Trotsky to Petrograd. By the time he arrived on March 5th, revolts were breaking out in other major cities, and the whole Petrograd province was in martial law. He had brought with him frontline Red Army troops equipped with artillery and was determined not to let the birthplace of the revolution he had devoted himself to fall. Tukhachevsky was placed in charge of the assault on the island and planned for an artillery barrage followed by a ground assault. Now, how do you launch a ground assault onto an island? Well, it was early March, and the waters separating the island and the city were frozen over. That's right, the army was going to cross the ice. For a lot of reasons, the attack didn't go so well. First, the attacking troops weren't thrilled about the whole situation, and special check units had to be deployed with machine guns to encourage them not to retreat. The artillery bombardment on the island's fortifications was also largely ineffective, and as the Red Army troops made their charge across five miles of open ice, the defenders pounded them with artillery of their own, which in turn cracked open the ice and sent troops into the freezing water to drown. There was a snowstorm on the day of the attack, March 7th, but the cover it provided also blinded the attackers. When holes opened in the ice, they had no way of seeing them before it was already too late. And with no cover, the defenders' machine guns mowed the attackers down, even if nobody could see anything. The disaster revealed the regime could still be beaten, and a new revolutionary sentiment gripped the nation. Lenin wasn't about to give in to the demands of his opponents, but at the same time the crisis grew to the point where desperate measures were needed. The 10th Party Congress, which began on March 9, 1921, should have been an occasion of triumph for him, as while the revolution had been stymied in Poland, the Civil War had been unequivocally won. But a victory lap wasn't in the cards. By that time, the countryside all across the nation had fallen, and even in areas less than 50 miles outside of Moscow, it was too dangerous for party members to travel without a military escort. The Kronstadt mutiny had magnified anti-Bolshevik sentiment already boiling over in the cities as well. 
he was forced to admit that even after the big battles had been won, that the regime was barely holding on, that they were facing a threat greater than the collection of generals that had assailed them for almost three years. But for Lenin, crisis and chaos had always been opportunities to advance his vision, and this time would be no exception. He was personally the most powerful man in the party, but there were still cliques and factions he did not control, and he had debate with them, especially as the party had grown in the past couple of years. Now it was time to rein all that in. His first target at the Congress was the workers' opposition, which, despite its name, was more of a reformist wing of the party instead of an actual block of opposition to Lenin. Still, he whipped the crowd into a panic that the workers would come for them all at the behest of the Kronstadt sailors, and the party members closed ranks in condemning the opposition wing. Lenin then made his next move, one that would work as long as he was still alive and a unifying figure, but would quickly become a tool for Stalin to crush his enemies. He convinced the Congress in a secret vote to ban factions. The Central Committee of the Party, dominated by Lenin and his close old Bolshevik allies, would now decide the party's direction. If you stepped out of line with that direction, you could be held up as a factionalist and purged from the party. And while the eventual purge of the workers' opposition members would take time, it would not be completed until 1923, Lenin took another administrative move in 1922 to carry out those removals. This was the creation of the office of General Secretary of the Party, effectively the guy who was empowered to promote, demote, or even remove party members. The first occupant was Stalin, a position he would hold for his entire life, and under his influence, the general secretary would also be the de facto leader of the Soviet Union. But that's all down the road. In the short term, Lenin had used this crisis to achieve party discipline under his authority, which was necessary, as the Congress was also the occasion for the formal abandonment of war communism. Just as the emergencies of 1918 had forced the Bolsheviks to try it out, now the crisis of early 1921 was forcing them to change course again. And this new course would be the start of the New Economic Policy, or the NEP. Instead of requisitions, the peasants were expected to pay a tax in kind, which was expected to be the grain that they grew, with any surplus harvest after the tax was paid free to be used however the peasant in question liked to which was huge because this meant that the free market was effectively restored. Additionally, rebates on grain collected was offered for farmers who worked to expand their fields under cultivation and if they were able to increase production. The new order of the day was to expand production to restore a measure of stability. While this seems like a decent way to go given the disasters of the past three years on the home front, Lenin did not broach the idea lightly. First, he waited on introducing the measure on March 15, 1921, the second-to-last day of the Congress. And when he did, he was sure to present a heavily detailed and reasoned case that also ate up a huge amount of time and prevented anyone else from making a meaningful rebuttal. And he made good points. He allayed fears of a return to capitalism by pointing out that the old system had been so thoroughly dismantled that it would be impossible to return to and he emphasized that government oversight of heavy industries, finance, and transportation would remain. Plus, the intent was that the government would over time encourage farmers into cooperatives and collectives anyway. The way the process would work was each peasant would be taxed on an individual basis, thus undermining the old village communes, and then once atomized, the individuals would gradually be pressed back together in communities 
better integrated with the state, which was all well and good, but still presented a retreat for many leading Bolsheviks. And while the finer details of the NEP were still to be hashed out as it was implemented, many leading Bolsheviks, like Trotsky, had terribly mixed feelings about the whole plan. That being said, the Party Congress was not the time or the place to have a debate about it, and there largely wasn't one. Lenin spoke for three hours on the topic, followed by four of their speakers who each got ten minutes. None offered significant criticism, and the measure was passed without a fuss. It turned out that promises of the restoration of free trade, at least to an extent, and relaxing of government controls, was what the people were wanting to hear. The strikes in the cities petered out by the end of the Congress, and on its last day, the 16th, only the Kronstadt held out. On that day, another attack across the ice was ordered, this time preceded by artillery barrage lasting days. 10,000 Red troops died in the 18-hour battle taking the island, but this time, the sailors surrendered. Zinoviev ordered 500 of them shot, and after the regular soldiers refused to do it, brought in members of the Komsomol, basically the youth scouts of the Soviet Union, to do the deed. And they did. Word, though, got out and almost got Zinoviev in trouble. Gorky, the author, complained to Lenin, and Lenin came to Petrograd to have a sit-down with his lieutenant. Zinoviev, always either panicky or dramatic, it is hard to parse which at any given time, reportedly had a heart attack at their meeting, though Gorky claimed he was faking it. The slap on the wrist came to nothing, and ultimately another 2,000 were executed. 8,000 Kronstadt sailors managed to make the harrowing journey across the ice instead of surrendering and wound up in Finland. Some would later return, but they were not forgotten and were either shot or imprisoned. The crushing of the mutiny was a PR disaster, but the island was never again a source of trouble. A bigger problem, though, was the continued revolt out in the countryside. The only saving grace for the Reds there was that despite it being a nationwide revolt, it wasn't unified or organized. The new strategy for the Red Army was to focus on one area, absolutely swarm the place with troops, and when local aid in locating the rebels wasn't forthcoming, launch a campaign of retribution and terror to make them cooperate. It started in April of 1921 in the Tambov province, with Tukhachevsky again placed in charge of the campaign. No effort was spared. Hardened veterans, backed by heavy weapons, led the charge in isolating the rebels in their base areas. Villages that didn't cooperate were burned, and propaganda warned the more neutral communities of the price of resistance. The families of rebels were held hostage and informants paid off for the whereabouts of any fugitives. Concentration camps were set up, reminiscent of the Boer War in South Africa. Planes were deployed to scout out rebel movements by air. Tens of thousands died in Tambov province alone, but the area was pacified. These tactics were repeated over and over again across Russia. Rebel groups were demolished over the summer of 1921, and any survivors of those armies were shot by the authorities. While the government promised that the NEP's tax-in-kind policy would be the answer to many of the peasants' concerns, most of the population was understandably suspicious of the new policy. This was also the occasion of the final destruction of the Mensheviks and the SRs as meaningful groups in the country. Both groups had been periodically banned and then allowed back into operating in the open before being banned again. Their leaders were routinely arrested and their printing presses shut down. But they clung to a certain level of existence, always looking for the moment that the workers and peasants would come to their senses and aid in toppling the Bolshevik regime just as they had in February 1917. 
1921, they got very close, but not close enough. And now the Bolsheviks decided that with the Civil War wound down and the whole uprising situation being dealt with, it was time to get rid of both groups. Responsibility for all the uprisings that had taken place from late 1920 into 1921 were pinned squarely on both of them, and they were branded enemies of the people. In the thousands, their members were hauled into custody and subjected to show trials. Their agitation would not be repeated, and with the crackdowns, the last political opposition to the Bolsheviks had been removed. But the very worst of 1921 was still around the corner. Due to the years of requisitioning and the year-long disruption on account of the revolts, the nation's agricultural sector was in a shambles never before seen. Naturally, the summer of 1921 turned out to be a drought year across much of the nation. This would have been bad news in what had once been normal times. Remember the example of the famine of 1891? Well, take that example and add everything I've covered over the episodes since then, and you have a recipe for a truly historical disaster that was going to bring the already scarred new nation to its knees. Just a little spoiler, a solid 5 million people starved to death in the famine to come, and Lenin was forced to accept help from what was among the most unlikely of sources. The misery was such that by the time the dust settled, the peasantry wasn't in a position to revolt again, and it also heavily influenced the implementation of the early NEP. Join me next week as the story goes from bad to worse. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Music